Hello, welcome to the Eagle Tales podcast, a new podcast from the Central High School Foundation, keeping you connected to the nest through storytelling and original interviews. I'm Josh Busey, your host for today's episode. Before we get started, though, a little bit about the foundation. We were established in 1996 to support present and future Central students, and today we are even more committed to preserving the values of a Central High School education. The foundation supports the school through many activities, like building relationships with alumni, fundraising, student scholarships, teacher classroom grants, and so much more. And we want to work with you. We are proud of the accomplishments that our students, staff, and 35,000 alumni achieve every day. Your patronage not only supports Central, but it also strengthens Eagle Nation. Make sure you visit our website to learn more at chsfomaha.org. I'm so excited today that for our third episode of Eagle Tales, we have the opportunity to sit down and talk with a rising star in Hollywood. Rachel Schuchert, who is a 1998 alumna of Central, will be joining us to talk about some of her upcoming projects, including a really neat project for the streaming service Netflix. Rachel, thanks for joining us today. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Rachel, I'm just so excited that you're here with us. And for our listeners that are tuning in today that might not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself and where in Omaha you grew up. Well, I grew up in kind of the Dundee Happy Hollow area. I lived there my whole life until I was 18. And then I went to New York City for college. I went to NYU. Um, So then I was in New York sort of from 1998 till about 2013 when I came to LA. And I've done a lot of different things in my career, all kind of related to writing and performance. I've, um, I've been an actor. I've been a playwright. I have written for a lot of magazines. I've I've written some books, published some books, and now I've been working really extensively in TV um, and film in Los Angeles for the past seven years or so. As a 1998 graduate of Central, what were some of your favorite Central memories and times of things that you did when you were at Central? (laughs) Oh, man. Um, There's so many. Let's see. As a night, I don't know if there's, if I have a specifically 98 memory. I, I always remember lunch in the courtyard and going out to the little like balcony, you know, that little kind of porch where people would sit. And in those days, like, I think kids were still allowed to smoke cigarettes out there. So there was like an elaborate. <laughs> 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 to get out there. I think that ended pretty quickly. <laughs> 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 like this is my freshman year. I remember like the social, I just remember everywhere that everyone hung out, out there out by the parking lot, down by the drama room. Like I, I was really involved in like the theater, the after school plays and stuff and doing all those plays and like I, the English department, I remember was always so special. And I was very specifically close to Latin English teachers. And, um, but I just, you know, I just remember my friends. I remember how special it was to be downtown and how you could just like walk to the old market after school and really feel like you were kind of a part of the city in a way that I think was really special to central. Were you involved with the roadshow any of your four years at Central? Yeah, I was in the roadshow a couple of times. I, I, I think I was, I did like a sketch one year and I don't remember, but I did, I did a couple of things. I was in a lot of the plays more than the roadshow. And who was your drama teacher at that time? Um, it was Peggy Georgeson was the drama teacher then. 
and I was in, and I was very involved in like art and music at school. So I was in, I was in acapella and I was in CHS singers with um, Mrs. Boma. And then I was very like into art. So I was always like on the top floor with like Mr. Andrews and Mrs. Zach and, uh-huh. <laughs> and all of that, that whole kind of world. Anything that was sort of arty, I was very involved in. So you graduate from Central in 1998. And then, as you mentioned, you went to NYU. What was the decision to go to New York and how was the change from Omaha to the big city? Um, it was intense. <laughs> I, uh, I knew that I wanted to go to like a conservatory program for acting at that point in my life. I thought I was going to be an actor and I wound up sort of adjacent, but I knew I wanted to be involved in theater. So New York was kind of the place to be. And I think NYU was the only school I really applied to. I applied early decision and I got in. So that was kind of that. And I went to the Tisch School of the Arts there. So it's like an audition process in addition to like the regular application and stuff. You have to like go there. There's auditions all over. But I think my dad and I actually like went to New York and I auditioned. I did my audition there. And I was very gung-ho and excited to be in New York. And then I really got hammered with the reality of it when I moved there. You know, it's a very big place. And NYU as a campus is not very... Ecology. It's really kind of like you're living in the city right away, right? which is a big thing at 18. But, you know, I lived. <laughs> I adjusted. <laughs> I'm a pretty resilient person. <laughs> That's something I've learned about myself over the years. That's pretty amazing, though. You knew, I mean, you only applied to the one school and you kind of knew then that's what you wanted to do and where you wanted to go, it sounds like. I've been very lucky that way throughout my life that I feel like I've always really had a sense of direction about where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And um, even, even if, you know, you're a little wide of the mark, because I think at the time, I don't know that you realize like doing theater or as a kid and that there's people that write the things you're saying and that that's a job too. You know, it's like, I didn't really know a lot of playwrights or, or writers. I mean, you know, you know about directors, you know about actors, and but I think the kind of vast array of jobs that are just sort of in the entertainment industry is not something you're really aware of if you're not sort of growing up really in the entertainment industry. And, you know, and I didn't really know anybody in Omaha that did what I do now. There were like a few people and obviously I knew actors at like the Rose and the Playhouse and you know that, but like just in terms of like having a template for what I wanted to do, that kind of came a little later. But I do feel really lucky that since I was about six years old, I knew that I it needed to be something to do with this, <laughs> you know. So and that that's gotten me out of a lot of scrapes, I think, is just having that kind of North Star of like, OK, but like I, I know what I want. And um, that's a real that's a real gift. It's kind of a talent in and of itself, I think, to sort of know where you're going. Well, and this is a great segue to my next question, because you said originally you thought maybe you would become an actress or that's kind of why you, you were interested, I guess, in that, in the beginning, what kind of changed along the way in that process? I mean, did your goals and aspirations change along with that or did those kind of stay the same and you just changed career ideas? I mean, I think I just kind of evolved. I, I've been acting for so long. I started doing, I was very like, I did a lot of local theater sort of outside of school to community theater, a lot of stuff at like the Emmy Gifford and the Rose and, you know, the Blue Barn and all of these. I mean, Omaha is such a special place in terms of that, that you have this access to all of these kind of really pretty world class, cool theaters that I don't think that you really 
that in a bigger city, you kind of don't necessarily have, they're not as accessible to like just a sort of 12 year old that's like interested in being in place. <laughs> We're know? very lucky so in Omaha. Cool, it's very lucky. It's a really cool thing. And it's really, and I, I got to know how unusual it was as I started to meet kids from other places and kids were very talented actors, like at school and who had never really done anything outside of, you know, kind of school plays and things like that. And I was lucky to have actually gotten to act and to perform and to learn in these very professional settings from an early age, but without the sort of, um, layer of being like a child actor in Hollywood where it's really like a business and there's a whole other kind of aspect to it. It was just like, genuinely fun. It was almost, almost closer to like a college acting experience, you know, except that I had it when I was younger, but I've been doing it for so long. And I think because of that, you know, since I was maybe like eight, eight or nine years old, I was doing, you know, four or five, six plays a year. And it was sort of, as I was in college, I started to get interested in creating things from, to perform, you know, and it kind of happened very organically. Like I would get sort of sick of doing the same scenes over and over again in scene study class or the same monologue. So I would just like write something. I would just like write a scene for like me and my scene partner to do or a monologue to perform. And from that, I started to get interested in making my own work, you know, kind of devised theater and, and sort of solo performance. And then writing plays was kind of a natural outgrowth from there. And I started to realize kind of my senior year, that I was getting more excited by the reaction that people had to things that I wrote than I was about their reaction to my performance in them. And I also started to get really excited when I would see, like, like I would write, I would write a scene, right? So like I'd, I'd say to like my scene partner, you know, Ryan or whoever, I'm like, let's do the scene that I wrote. And he would be like, okay, cool. We'll do the scene that you wrote. And I would be so much more excited. I was so excited by seeing like what he would bring to the dialogue or like his interpretation of the scene that I was about performing in it myself. And I started to be like, Oh, I'm, I think I might be a writer. <laughs> you know, Like, like that, it, that was so much more interesting to me and it felt so much more fulfilling. And I love seeing, you know, the, my work kind of brought to life by other people. And it started to feel like maybe that was really the direction that I wanted to go in. And then, then I graduated, but I finished my degree in acting and stuff. I didn't kind of like reapply okay. into the dramatic program or anything like that. And I was part of this, you know, I don't know how much you know about the acting program at NYU, but it's, it's split into these studios and each studio has kind of a different focus and like a slightly different style and, right. and creates, you know, kind of slightly different kind of performer. And the last two years I was there, I was at the experimental theater wing, which really has like a focus on creating your own work and sort of unconventional work and experimental work. So like, it was a little, it was a little bit of a laboratory to sort of for like a burgeoning playwright, you know, cause they, it's not so much about like audition technique. It's more about like, let's create a piece about like, it's a little more, it's a little, a little less linear. So I was doing that. And then I, I performed in, in Europe a bit after graduation and, and, and sort of at the same time that I was kind of like, starting to realize that I thought what I really wanted to do was write plays and, and, and just create work that way. I was also starting to write for magazines and for websites and things just as a way of making money mm -hmm. and, you know, just personal essays, movie reviews, just that sort of thing. It was kind of the beginning, you know, that sort of like mid two thousands, like, Oh, you can get paid to write on the internet. <laughs> kind the of internet thing. boom, the dot com boom. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was a little past that, but like it, that was just starting to be like a feasible thing. And again, the barrier to entry was much lower than it was to like, you know, become an intern at the New York Times or something like that. 
And, you know, so I would like write an essay and I would get paid like $500. And then I was like, great, now that's my rent. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and from that, I, I got the attention of a literary agent and I wound up selling an essay collection. So I did a book, I did an essay collection, and then I did a memoir. And at the same time, I was kind of really building my career in theater. I was involved with a lot of theaters in New York. I, I, had a, I was kind of coming up as a playwright along with a whole group of other playwrights, many of whom are still friends and who also work in film and television in L.A. now because it's the way that you can make a living. And I wrote a memoir called Everything is Going to Be Great uh, that came out in 2010 that started to get some attention um, from like film and television producers out here. So I, I started to come out and, you know, take meetings and I, I really liked it. I just I'd always wanted to work in Hollywood. I'd always loved Hollywood. I love TV. And I was sort of like, I feel like this could be a cool thing to do. And everyone was like, yeah, no, we love you. Let us know when you move to L.A. <laughs> had you had you ever visited L.A. before you decided to move out there? Or what was that process moving across the country? Oh, yeah, like? yeah, I had. I mean, I a lot, of, a lot of my friends at NYU were from L.A. And I had come out like at breaks and stuff to visit. And I, I'd been out here several times. And then, you know, I, I so I started to have kind of like meetings with producers and studios and things like that when my second book came out and I would come, you know, every three or four months and have sort of like another round of meetings and just kind of getting to know the lay of the land out here. And, and more and more of my friends from New York were starting to trickle out to LA also for jobs and things like that. So I'd been coming here pretty regularly for about three or four years before we actually like bit the bullet and moved. And I moved here permanently in 2013, the summer of 2013, um, I got stacked on my first TV show about six months later, I think six or seven months later. And it's just been kind of, I've just been kind of working ever since. I was going to ask you about your, well, especially the two books, Everything is Going to be Great and then Crazy Stupid Money. So like, what was the inspiration behind those books? Like, how did you get started writing those? Well, I, I've been doing a lot of this kind of personal writing on the internet. Um, you know, like we were saying that I think that sort of 2005, 2006, like universe was really a boom for these sort of personal essays, especially by young women as a way of kind of making sense of their experiences. And I was definitely a part of that. Um, and I had this idea, you know, for this sort of memoir about my time living in Europe after college that I thought could be a kind of travel memoir slash kind of coming of age story. And that's everything is going to be great. And, you know, it, I had a very novelistic structure that period in my life. Like, it really felt like I kind of it had like a, a narrative to it just in terms of like my personal life and kind of deciding who I wanted to be and what the next stage of my life was going to be like. And that's such a I feel like people return to that time of the early 20s again and again, because it's such an unsettled time Like you're sort of spit out into the world, but you're really not ready you make a lot of impulsive decisions that have like long-term ramifications in your life, but you don't know it yet. Like, it's just an interesting time. And this was kind of like pre girls and pre, you know, like, I feel like then it really sort of became like this thing, but I, I feel like I was a little bit on the forefront of that kind of writing. So that was that memoir. And then, you know, then crazy, stupid money. I actually wrote because I needed money. <laughs> <laughs> We had, we had been out here a short time and I just, I was like broke and I was like, well, I have this idea for a kind of like, not a book length project, but sort of a, a novella like thing. And, um, Amazon had been doing these Kindle singles that, you know, just about kind of things that were sort of too long for a magazine piece or too personal for a magazine piece, but weren't really quite a book. And I had this idea that it would be interesting to like interrogate the role of money in relationships 
specifically the role of money in my relationship and marriage. And also then I could, you know, I would have like two months rent. (laughs) (laughs) The the struggles of a creative, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'll be very honest. I feel like I'm, I'm very lucky now to be like I can be very financially comfortable as a writer, but it's like a long road to get there. (laughs) I really remember before it was the case. Well, I mean, you've had a remarkable career working on projects like the Red Band Society, uh, Supergirl, and of course, Glow on Netflix. But what was your favorite project, would you say, that you've worked on or been a part of looking back that you think I had really good time on that project or it was something that I really enjoyed working on? I mean, Glow has been such a dream job in so many ways. I've worked with some of my best friends on this show that's so important to all of us. It's such a fun collegial environment. It's a lot of women. I really like working with other women. The actors are amazing. And there's just so much creative freedom on that show. Like any kind of crazy idea we have, we just sort of try it. That was really like a a breakthrough for me in terms of like the kind of work I wanted to do and the kind of environment I wanted to be in and the kind of people I wanted to work with. And has just been like an utter joy. And I hope we get to finish shooting season four. We got shut down in March. I was on set. I I had written the episode. It was like the second episode of season four, which was supposed to be our final season. And we were like four days into the shoot when the shutdown happened. And I'm I'm not sure when we're going to be able to go back, but I hope we'll get to finish because I mean, we will eventually. I just have no idea when, because it's just was, it's, we just want to do it right. You know, it's like, I want to finish the show. And then, and then my own show, of course, the babysitters club has been incredibly meaningful to work on and fun and, it's, it's my baby. So. Yeah. We want, we want to talk about that. We want to talk about your newest project, uh, the babysitters club for Netflix, the streaming service, Netflix. Talk to us about how you took that book series written by Anna M. Martin and turned it into a TV show. What a cool thing that is. Well, you know, I was a huge fan of those books as a kid, like a huge, like a really obsessive fan. I just had like whole bookshelves of them in my room read all of them and they were so important to me. And I think that that's true of sort of an entire generation of women. Um, so I was approached about adapting them. I had, it was, this was in like the fall of 2017 and my friend Lucy Katata, uh, who was working for Mike DeLuca at the time at his production company had been wanting to adapt these books forever. And I guess she and Mike had partnered with Walden Media, who's the studio on the project, who had the rights. They had this relationship with Scholastic. And I guess a lot of people had approached Scholastic over the years about adapting them. And Scholastic is very protective over the property and very much wanted to know that like any adaptation was going to be really made in the spirit of the books and not kind of like, you know, there's like a lot of like re-envisionings of these sort of classic properties from childhood that get really dark or really like sexy. Or they just they did not want to do that. <laughs> Well, and they, there was a movie that came out about the series. Was it 90 or in the nineties, I believe. It was like 95. Yeah. There was like a, yeah, there was a short, a sort of short lived HBO adaptation in like 1990. That was like a, seven episodes. And then there was a movie in like 95. When the movie came out, I had, had, was kind of like a little old for it already. You know, like I had sort of aged out of the books a little bit. I was like sure. going to go see like Pulp Fiction in the theaters, <laughs> like with boys. By then. <laughs> of course. But, um, <laughs> but so, so 
so Miami Visitors Club was very much the books, like in the sort of late 80s and very early 90s, like right around 89, 90. That was kind of my sweet spot with the books, which is really when they were sort of, I think, at the height of their popularity, too, or just beginning to kind of rest. So Lucy had Lucy and Mike had partnered with the studio and then kind of independently, Lucia Agnello, who's another executive producer on the project. Um, she's a director. She directed several episodes and has sort of been a, a creative partner on all of this with me. She had also been this obsessive Babysitter's Club fanatic and had like sat down with her agents. And they're like, is there anything like from when you were a kid that you're really like looking to adapt? And she's like, yes, the Babysitter's Club. And she like wanted to buy the rights. And, but they're like, the rights are like a million dollars. And she's like, I don't want to buy the rights, but I want someone to buy them. Yes, please. And, right? um, and she found out that Lucy and Mike had them. And so she like kind of got hooked up with them and attached as the director. And then they were looking for a writer. And so I get this phone call from Lucy. I was about six weeks postpartum. I think I had just had my son. I was already back at work on Glow because I went back to work full time at like three weeks postpartum because wow. <laughs> that's Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people can do that. <laughs> I don't know if I would do it again. <laughs> at the time, I sort of was like, oh, it'll be fine. Like there, there were some things about it that weren't terrible, but it was definitely it was it was physically very difficult. I basically didn't sleep for about nine months. Oh my gosh! Like at all. <laughs> so I have like these blocks. So I had, so that, and that's kind of part of the story is I, I have these like missing memory chunks from that time. So I, cause I was just in this like state of kind of constant blackout <laughs> and like newborn exhaustion. So I, uh, I got this phone call from Lucy. She's like, D did you ever, were you in the babysitter's club when you were a kid? And I was like, Oh my God. Yes. And she told me that she was kind of looking at it to adapt and would I be interested in meeting on it? And I was like, they were looking for a showrunner and somebody to create the series. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I have ideas. And she's like, okay, I'm going to set a phone call for you and me and Naya Susikoff, who is um, from Walden, who's another EP on the show, who's like sort of our studio executive and is really great. And another, everybody that was involved in this project was so in love with the babysitter's club, had like grown up reading the books obsessively. Everyone except Mike, who's, you know, like, a, like an old, like, a guy who's, but his daughter loves them. So like, kind of like came together that way. Um, so I, I was like, great, let's have this phone call. You know, they set it up and then I completely forgot about this phone call. Cause I was in this like oh, no. blackout. <laughs> so I get this phone call I'm on the set of glow shooting and the phone rings. And I was like, it's this phone call that I totally forgot about. And I like ran into this like little side room on the studio lot. That had been set aside for me to like pump because I was, you know, breastfeeding and pumping. And so I had this little like cinder block cell that I <laughs> that was like a private like broom closet for myself. I went in my little pumping cell. And what was so amazing, I had totally forgot about this call, was totally unprepared for it, which was so irresponsible, but I was just so tired. And what I found to be truly amazing was that as we started talking about the Babysitter's Club, I remembered everything about it. Like, this was, again, like a period in my life when I like barely remembered my own name. I would like drive away from work, like with the car door open and like get like nine blocks away and be like, it's breezy. And then realize that like the driver's side door was open. Like, I'm so out of it. But I remembered like every detail of the Babysitter's Club, like all of their like handwritings and specific outfits and everything that happened in the books. And it just was like so there in my hard drive. And I was like, oh, I think I really actually should genuinely this project and so then I sat down with Lucia and she and I just had such a sort of similar vision for like how to update it and 
why we felt so connected to it and why it was important. And it, it felt very exciting too to kind of take this thing from my childhood. I feel like Hollywood sort of takes things that like boys grew up loving and treats them with incredible seriousness and care, you know, like Spider-Man and Star Wars and all these kinds of things. And Lucia always says that for her, the Babysitter's Club was like her Star Wars, you know? And I, I totally feel the same way. Like it was, the world is so complete. And I was just like, it would be so cool to take something like that, like this property that really meant a lot to girls and kind of treat it with the same care and seriousness and complexity. So when did you first looking at like a timeline of things, like how long would it, did it take from initial conceptualization to like filming of the first episode? I attached to the whole project in like, I guess it was probably like December of 2017. Like by, by the time we'd kind of gone through the whole process of, you know, kind of putting all of that together, then we, we pitched it to networks in the spring of 2018. So like a few months after that, kind of after the holidays and everything always takes forever to get going. And then it took forever to kind of put the whole deal together. And Netflix wound up ordering it straight to series, which was very exciting. So we knew it was going to happen. And then I finished the third season of Glow because like there was just nobody was like available right away. There's like there's just like a lot that goes into kind of setting everything up. So we sold it kind of definitively to Netflix in like, I guess it was probably like June of like 2018 or July. And then it took all this time to kind of get the deal ready and to get everybody's schedules kind of coordinated. And I opened the writer's room in the spring of 2019. So it was like April of 2019. And then we started shooting in August of 2019. We shot sort of mid, we saw from the beginning of August until like mid October. And then we finished, we wrapped post and finished everything sort of January of this year. And then it was supposed to come out in May, but that wound up getting delayed because of the pandemic, because they hadn't been able to finish sort of all the international dubbing before everything shut down in other parts of the world. Because Netflix, you know, everything is like simultaneously. And especially in a project like this, that like is looking at a big audience of like kids, like kids are not going to be able to read subtitles necessarily. Right. So getting like all the dubbing and all the languages was really important, but it's like, we couldn't get like Korea because like Korea had already shut down. You know, you know, it's like, so we had to kind of wait for things to kind of, um, it took a little time to kind of get that all figured out. So people could like record the dubbing and stuff at home. So we wound up delayed. Our release was delayed by about seven weeks. So we're supposed to come out like Mother's Day weekend. And then we wound up coming out 4th of July. And so how would you describe your role with the show? Obviously your title, but like, did you write the pilot episode or what, what did that all look like? I'm the showrunner. So everybody reports to me. I'm kind of the boss of everybody. <laughs> um, and then I report to the network and the studio. So as the showrunner, you're in charge of kind of all the creative for the show, all the scripts, you run the room, you oversee all the scripts. I write, or at least, you know, do kind of like a pass on all of the scripts. I wrote, I think for episode, the first season, I wrote episodes one, two and eight of 10. So I wrote three of the 10 episodes myself. And then, but then you wind up, you know, kind of, you want it all to feel like it has a consistent voice. I feel like, especially in a first season show, you kind of, there's a lot of like rewriting and kind of revising. All of our writers were great, but just to make everything really feel like it's of a piece. So yeah, you kind of have to keep all those creative arcs in your head. You also sort of oversee, I mean, a lot of this is delegated, but you have kind of you have to oversee casting. You make all the creative decisions. All the department heads report to you. It's a big job. So you decided who was who was cast as the main characters. Is that right? 
Yeah. I mean, yes. Like there's a lot of people who kind of weigh in on these decisions, obviously, because the network has to approve and you want all the producers to be on the same page and stuff. But yeah, in general, I make a, a lot of those final decisions kind of come to me. And then the network can like once in a while, the network will be like, no, we hate that person. But that almost never happens. <laughs> you know. Um, and then also I hire the department heads, you know, production designer, costume designer, all of those, all of their work kind of comes through me. They'll like show me what I, they're thinking and I approve everything. And um, the line producer who's sort of in charge of the whole production in terms of the budget and the schedule and all that stuff, they also report to me. So like I, everything kind of goes through me. There's a lot going on, a lot of moving pieces. You kind of choose all the people who are heading up these departments and you don't necessarily like do everything yourself, but you kind of, everything comes through you. The book, the buck stops here basically. And also as a show it's a lot of it is, solving problems, you know, like the line producer or the AD will come to you and be like, I can't schedule this episode and because of the way it's written. And then you're like, okay, well, tell me what you need and let's figure out how to kind of rewrite the script so we can make it happen. You know, there's just, there's a lot of like problem solving sometimes on the fly. Sometimes you have a little more. I actually um, found that being a mother really helped me as a showrunner because it, it sort of organizes your brain in this different way where everything is just sort of triage, you know, it's like, here's the 17 things that I have to do today, but like what has to be done in the next 10 minutes? Like, is somebody bleeding? Okay. Nobody's bleeding. All right. So that's like, if somebody's bleeding, that's the first thing, but it's like, what, what needs to, what needs my attention this second? What can I do an hour from now? What can I do at the end of the day? Like you just kind of, you get that, that kind of mom brain where it organizes itself that way. And it really lends itself to being a showrunner. So, um, and also just, I feel like you become much more, I don't, as a parent, you just become much more sort of patient, which is also very helpful (laughs) and, and try not to sweat the small stuff. (laughs) And the show's gotten stellar reviews, critically acclaimed. Thank you. I have to ask, are there any updates on a potential second season? Um, I'm not allowed to tell you that yet. Oh, shoot. <laughs> but I'm, I will say that I'm very optimistic. So season one had 10 episodes. How many episodes did season one have? 10 episodes. Yeah. I imagine if we're lucky enough to get a season two, it'll be similar. Besides the Babysitter's Club, what other projects and things are you involved with right now? Or if you're allowed to say. I can tell you some things. I'm circling a bunch of things right now. I have, I'm looking at some feature, possible feature projects and, and I I have a few TV things kind of on the boil, but nothing that's been like announced yet. So I kind of, I kind of can't tell you too much, (laughs) but, um, but it has been very cool. The reception of the show. And I feel like there's a lot of doors that are open for me right now. And I have to kind of, I have to make some decisions about, you know, what my next thing is going to be. But I have just been like, it's been so gratifying to see the response to the show. I'm so proud of everybody that worked on it. And I'm so proud of the show itself. And it's just, it's really nice to sort of feel like people have taken from something what you intended, you know, like you put things out to the, into the world and you kind of don't always know if everyone's going to like get it or kind of see what you're trying to do. And with this one, especially, I feel like people really have like embraced it and kind of understood what we wanted them to understand from it. And that has been really lovely to see. And I think especially right now, it's been just so nice to have made something that people can kind of watch with their kids that you can watch as a family. That's sort of warm and uplifting and about community and taking care of each other. 
you know, it's, it's a, it's been a like bizarrely kind of perfect moment for this show. I feel like, <laughs> thank God this happened. Right. Well, you read the books. Were you ever a babysitter or just, did you just read the books? Oh no, I was a babysitter. I, I, I had a younger sister and a lot of younger cousins and I babysat all of them a lot. I definitely babysat kids in my neighborhood sometimes, but even before I was really like a lot, like old enough to, cause you know, when you read those books, the girls in the books are like 13, but I really loved them most when I was like nine or 10. So I was maybe like not quite allowed to babysit a lot yet, but like, I was always trying to do things like, like I would, I would like watch my sister, like my mom would be like, I'm going to the supermarket or something, you know? And then I would like, I was like allowed to, it was a different time too. I feel like people were much more like cavalier about like leaving 10 year olds, like home alone. <laughs> it's like that than they are now. Although I always do say, I would let any of the girls on the show who are all the age that the actual sitters, I would let any of them watch my kid. They're all so responsible like together. They're carrying, you know, a like major television show on their shoulders. So I feel like they could like look after a three-year-old for two hours. But yeah, I, so I did a lot of babysitting around the neighborhood. And, and then I remember when I was really in love with the books, I would try to do kind of things because they were always having like sort of play groups and little summer camps and birthday parties and things. So I was, I was always trying to do that. I remember trying to have like a summer day camp at my house for like kids in the neighborhood. And I think it wound up being like my sister and like my two cousins and the boy next door. And I like charged them all $3 and I like served them a snack and I would teach them like choreography from like Madonna videos in the basement. That was like, <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, my sister also babysat a lot. I actually feel like she ended up babysitting a lot more and for longer than I did. Like she really, like that was like her summer job a lot. I sort of stopped babysitting after a time and then didn't really babysit again until I was like 37 and had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like you're drawing on a lot of personal experiences as you were working on the show. And so I did want to ask briefly, how were you able to kind of balance maintaining the traditional feel from the books, but you said trying to kind of modernize it a little bit, you know, for a different audience. So like, how did you balance that? Well, I feel like I really wanted to hold on to what I felt was the most important things about the books. And these are the kind of things that you don't really understand. I think necessarily when you read them as a kid, but like you just so much want to be one of them reading those books. Like you want to be one of the babysitters. You want to be their friend. And so the, that core friendship of the girls and the, the kind of, is just so important. And, and also just the way that um, they're very positive, you know, they're really about like being a good citizen. They're really about like wanting to take on responsibility in your community and kind of be there for other people. And, and, and I kind of, that was really inspiring to me just thinking about it in a modern lens where I feel like this generation of kids has really taken on that mantle you know, like I remembered seeing when I was first starting to work on the show and we had, I think we had just sold the show or about to go out with the show was when there was the first March for Our Lives. And there were all these like 12, 13 year old girls giving these like unbelievable speeches in front of like millions of people about the kind of world that they wanted to create and grow up in. And I was like, that's who these girls are, you know, like they're out there. Like this generation of kids is just so aware of kind of what they're up against. They're so educated about things like fairness and um, justice and 
just so much positive energy, I think, in terms of like really being able to like speak out against prejudice and racism and intolerance. And like, they're so articulate about that stuff in a way that I'm not sure that my generation was. So it felt like a really interesting jumping off point to like look at some of those issues that are very natural to this generation of kids that they've really grown up engaging with and understanding. And then, you know, of course, there was this sort of puzzle piece to figure out like the the technology of it, that like, why do they have a landline and like the, the club kind of can't exist if they don't. And that for me, it was helpful to be a new mother because I was just like, I'm spending all of my time trying to figure out childcare. Like this model actually sounds amazing. <laughs> just this phone call. I could just make this like one phone call. And absolutely like this nice girl from my neighborhood whose parents I know will come and like watch the baby for two hours and I can like go get a haircut. <laughs> like it was like, I was really deep in that muck of being like, how do I navigate all of these like websites and like waiting for people to call you back and then they call you back and then they're like, well, I'm $37 an hour and now, and then having to do like a background check on everybody. Like it was insane. Like I, so, um, I just, it just felt like so simple and lovely and like something that my, and I, and now that I, and I was a parent, so I was now suddenly relating to like the parents in the books in a totally different way and being like, oh, these are my contemporaries. Like these are parents of like little kids, you know, these are like me and my friends. So it felt like it all kind of came together that way. And I sort of could identify with like both sets of characters in a new way. And so for our listeners, the Babysitter's Club is streaming now on Netflix. All episodes are available as well as Glow. I'm not sure about the other TV shows that you've worked on, but I know we have those two should be available for streaming now. <laughs> I think they're all streaming. I think In some platform out there. Yes. So we like to end our show usually talking about your favorite central memory. You've already kind of talked about that. So I wondered if maybe you, there was a favorite central teacher or somebody at central who had a profound impact on your life. Yeah. Mr. Daly, my English teacher, senior year. I think I was one of his last classes of students before he retired. He was my favorite teacher and he really recognized something special in me in terms of English and literature and we would talk about life and I feel like he really made me believe in myself. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a treat. We're really glad that you could join us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Josh. Once again, I want to extend a big thank you to our guest, Rachel Schuchert, a 1998 graduate of Central High School. If you haven't Googled it yet, be sure to check out her upcoming Netflix show, The Babysitter's Club, which is available now streaming on Netflix. For our viewers out there, we hope you enjoyed listening to episode three of Eagle Tales. We would love to hear what you thought of this episode by emailing us at connect at chsfomaha.org or by tweeting us at CHSF Omaha on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for the Central High School Foundation. And if you haven't already, make sure you hit that subscribe button to like us and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you can become notified when we post new episodes as they're published. A complete library of previous episodes can also be found on our website, www.chsfomaha.org. And remember, near or far, you are part of the Central High School family. Go Eagles! Go Eagles!